Matthew 26, beginning in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his swords, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call in my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priests. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses had come forward. Finally, two came forward and declared this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty God and coming out in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and he said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him, and he said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and the servant girl came to him. You were also, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said, to the people there this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth he denied it again with an oath I don't know this man after a little while those standing there were went up to Peter and said surely you 
are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I do not know this man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. Let's say our scripture declaration together. Lord, we honor your word to us. May your truth become our heart's pursuit and our life's practice. Amen. All right. Would you guys turn, before you sit down, would you guys turn with somebody? Wave to them. Let them know it is good to see them. May God bless you. Look at your beautiful faces, some of y'all. You, you, you're, you're socially distanced, but you got your mask down so we can see your smiling faces. May God bless you. It is so good to see you guys. I'm going to give some of y'all a Wakanda hug. It is good to see y'all. God bless you. And uh, some of the kids, y'all can be dismissed to the back. You guys go right ahead. And uh, everyone else, you can be seated. Thank you for being here. Let me jump up here onto the stage as we begin uh, talking today about the king who claimed his crown. Today, part number three, the king who claimed his crown, part three. Well, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some of the different parts of Jesus's life and what that looked like and what that kind of experience was like to go through that with him. The very first week, Eric did a fantastic job speaking about um, the, the time that Jesus was in front of Pilate where Pilate asked the question that many people are still asking to this day, what is truth? And so as he asks what is truth, it is great for us to remember that God is the one who provides truth. Truth is not found in this world. It's found in our God and our God alone. And then we also moved the next week as we talked last week about the agony in the garden and the fact that in the truth of the matter, this is where the real crucifixion took place. It's Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane who sacrifices his will where he says to the Lord, you know, the Lord God above, he says, God, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And I told you guys last week, there was half of the things that I wanted to share with you that I shared with you last week. Hopefully the best half, but there was so much there that we couldn't even get to it all last week. These passages of Scripture are longer passages, but these are the very cornerstones of our faith. To know who Jesus was, what he did, what he went through, what he endured as he sacrificed himself on the cross, which we'll be talking about next week. But then we today look at the fact that Jesus was willing to go through the mockery of what they called trial. And I want to talk a little bit about that today. And this is something that we understand. As a matter of fact, last week we talked about something that was called the Chalcedonian Creed, which happened in 450 or so. And basically they went through and they talked about how much human and how much divinity was there in Jesus. And so if you look at how Jesus was human and human and divine at the same exact time, we see that in the scriptures. And so what they did was all the church leaders came together and they developed a creed. You've heard of probably the Apostles' Creed, but you can also see there were different creeds throughout uh, the years. And this one came about in 451 as there was an explanation of how much human 
and how much divinity existed in the person of Jesus Christ. And they basically came to the fact that Christ was both fully human and fully divine. And because of that, he alone was able and willing to make the sacrifice that we basically had to have. We see that he thirsts while he is on the cross. That's human. We see that he is tempted to avoid the suffering of the cross. That, again, is human. But then he also knows persons before even meeting them. That is the sign and symbol of his divinity. And then throughout his entire ministry for three solid years, he works miracles all throughout. Those are signs of his divinity. And so he alone, as fully man and fully God at the same exact time, he alone is worthy and able to satisfy the sin penalty that God insisted be paid. And we see that even spoken about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I share this with you, and I don't normally leave the verses up there on the screen, but I did in this word, uh, this particular one because we see it as 45 and then jump to 47 then jump to 49. You can see it. And so it is written, the, the first Adam became a living being and the last Adam a life-giving spirit. That's speaking about Jesus. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is from heaven. And then in verse 49, and just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, in other words, in the same way that we look like Adam, act like Adam, have a nature similar to Adam's, we now bear the image of Christ as his followers and as those who eventually will be transformed into a body like his own to live forever in his presence. It is a beautiful thing. We talked a little bit about that. Well, I'm here today to talk to you about after the Garden of Gethsemane, where where Eric just kind of began to pick up from the scriptures a little earlier, he basically picked right up at the end of the Garden of Gethsemane and that scene and then went straight into the fact that Jesus had basically a mock trial that he had to stand. We're going to talk a little bit about it because the truth is, is that the synoptic gospels, which means, by the way, synoptic, the word means to see together. It is a way of seeing from different perspectives the same exact events, some emphasizing some parts and some leaving other parts out. And it is just a good full view of exactly how things happen in the life of Jesus from four different perspectives. It's like one person standing on one corner versus another corner versus another corner explaining how the car wreck took place. And yeah, this is a car wreck. I mean, this is a 10 car pileup because it is where the ugliness of human beings meets the divinity and love and grace of God. It is a clash and it happens and it is detailed by the four different gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we talk about this, this has been stuff that has inspired people all throughout the years and continues to inspire them. For example, or for instance, you might have heard of the book called The Murder of Jesus by John MacArthur. And this is the picture of the front of that book. And John MacArthur speaks about that. And he actually kind of goes through. He says, the pieces are all in place. The curtain rises for the final act. God himself is about to die. An unprecedented conspiracy of injustice, cruelty, and religious and political interests sentence a man guilty of no crimes to the most barbaric method of execution that has ever been devised. The victim was no mere man. This was God himself in the flesh. And in this moment, the creator of life died. It is a powerful thing to see that Jesus rises from the place he's been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane 
sets his face like flint, as the Bible tells us in Isaiah, and he goes and says, my will is 100% committed to doing the will of God and God alone. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thy will it ought to be done. And I'm going to create it and make sure that it does happen and it is done. There's also a book called Killing Jesus that I've read personally. It's by a man named Bill O'Reilly. You might actually recognize him from Fox News. And I'm just here to tell you, I've read through the book. There's no political issue or whatever. He goes through and he talks about the killing of Lincoln. He talks about the killing of Kennedy. And in that killing series, he talks about the killing of Jesus. Three incredibly important men in his old, uh, in, in this entire thing that he's spoken about. It's pretty well rated. You can get that on Amazon Prime, on Audible, also via audiobook and ebook from Fort Bend County Libraries. If you're interested in going a little deeper, check this out because it talks about all the injustices that Jesus dealt with. Here's what he said about this trial that Jesus is about to endure. It says that he said that Jesus lived in a time when human life was worth very little. And I'm just going to hit pause real quickly. We as Americans, people who are here living in this country, you know, if you've ever lived another place, you know that we place a great value not only on human life, but on the individual human life. But it is not that way all throughout the world, and it is not that way all throughout human history. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was walking the earth, there were a lot of people that didn't care if people just died wholesale and in huge numbers. We see different things happening in our world today that tell us we're going backwards in some places that we value human life so little and so lightly. We need to be very careful that we don't go backwards in our development as human beings to where human life is not valued. But we see that Jesus lived in a time when human value was worth very little. Life expectancy was less than 40 years. Today, there are some countries where it's almost even twice that number, around 79 years. Here in the United States, around 72, 73, 74 years. So it is a huge difference in the life expectancy. Far less if you happen to be a person that angered the Roman powers that were. In other words, Jesus found himself squarely in the crosshairs of a people that hated him because he was robbing them of their political and religious power. But he also set himself squarely in the crosshairs of the Roman government who did not want a revolt happening anywhere in their area, but they knew if it was coming, it was probably coming from Jerusalem. I can almost see Pilate being the guy who receives his orders from Rome congratulations, you've become governor. And he's like, yes, this is awesome. I've been promoted. And then he reads a little further and realizes that he's now the governor, the Roman governor sent to Jerusalem. And he's like, oh no. I mean, Jerusalem was a hotbed. It's still a place that you and I probably would love to go and visit. But how many times have you said, I'm going to wait till the things in the Middle East slow down and calm down before we go and celebrate there in Jerusalem? I bet a bunch of you have planned to go to the Holy Land, but yet you keep waiting for things to calm down and they just never do. I'm here to tell you that it was the same in Jesus' time. Pilate was probably stoked that he was going to be the Roman governor, but then he found out he was going to be the Roman governor in Jerusalem and probably hated his life at that moment. Here is the truth. 
As we see what was going on, there were so many different political things going on from the Jewish side, from the Roman side. As a matter of fact, as we talk about six different trials that Jesus has to endure, some have said there were three secular and three that were religious, that Jesus endured them all and did did so with such incredible dignity. But there's a picture here of Jesus before Caiaphas. I love this picture because it reminds you that these people who were supposed to be holy were in the midst of breaking law after law and rule after rule that they claimed to live by, claimed to be so desperate to enforce because Jesus was such a bad guy that they went and they broke all of the rules, their own rules, so that they could get Jesus and do him in. Now, I've got two something to learn as I shared with you last week. I'm sharing something to learn with you today, but there's also a second one because there's just so much going on. But let me just begin. This is kind of reading from someone who had talked about all the different trials. Here's what it said. It said that there were several illegalities. That means things that were illegal. There were several things illegal going on in these trials from the perspective of Jewish law. There's actually seven that are listed here, and I'm going to read all seven. These are the things that I came up with and I wrote down, and then these are in addition to that. So let's just kind of look at it. No trial was ever to be held during feast time. That was an illegal thing, but you know that Jesus was crucified during the time of Passover. Each member of the court had to vote individually to convict or acquit, but Jesus was convicted by acclamation. In other words, they would go through and they would say, I cast my vote that Jesus be crucified. And then the next person would come and say, I cast my vote that Jesus be crucified. And then the next person would come and say, I cast my vote that Jesus be set free. What? But in this time, they didn't give anybody the option. They said, everybody agree? This guy's a bad guy. He needs to die. Am I right? Yep. All right. Sold. Done. Finished. And Jesus was convicted to death at that moment, even though it was totally illegal. 71 people should have been casting individual votes. They cast one. In the death penalty was ever given, a full night must pass before the sentence was carried out. The reason that would happen was because they didn't want to crucify somebody with the mob mentality. They wanted to let there be a cooling off period, which, by the way, is a great way. If you're a person who suffers from a need for retail therapy, do yourself a favor and make up a rule that you don't get to buy something unless you slept on it at least one night. It will help you save you tons of money. Here's the deal. The Jews also had no authority to execute anybody, but they were the driving force, making sure that Jesus was killed. No trial was to be held at night, but this trial was held in the overnight hours before dawn. And if you saw that picture just a moment ago, we're going to show it back again a little later on. But if you see that picture, you can see all of the lamps and lights. It reminds us that the world was a very, very, very dark place back then. You guys remember a couple of days ago when you guys were at home and your lights went out? It got dark at night. Can I get an amen? I mean, it was dark, very dark. And there's the funny thing, those candles, all the candles that they had at that time, that's all that they could see by. Isn't it incredible to think about a halogen bulb that you and I have, or even an incandescent bulb, or even these stage lights that are shining on me right now, all of these things more powerful and brighter and putting off more light than people were used to experiencing anywhere. That world was a very dark place. 
And if they wanted to scamper from Annas' house to Caiaphas' house to Pilate's residence to Herod's residence and back to Pilate's residence, they could do it all because there was so much darkness that you basically had to get close enough to be able to hit somebody just to be able to see who it was that was moving in the dark of the night. You guys with me? Y'all understand? It's a pretty underhanded and pretty shady deal. And yeah, I said shady on purpose so you would understand it was dark. All right, here's what else is going on. The accused was to be given counsel or a lawyer or a representation. Jesus had none. And then the accused was not to be asked self-incriminating questions. But the high priest, the guy who's supposed to be closest to God, says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us all the truth. Are you or are you not the Messiah? And anyway, Jesus answered that. They were going to get him. They put him in a place where they basically gave him a question that he couldn't answer without incriminating himself. And the moment that he did, he was sentenced to death. It was illegal in so many different ways. And by the way, I wrote down on here, a trial in a private residence is absolutely ludicrous. They went to people's houses, including Pilate's palace twice, who was the man who eventually convicted him and caused him to be killed. Now, there's a lot of people and players that I've already mentioned. I want to just mention them up here on the screen. These are the players in the drama. There's the Sanhedrin or Sanhedrin. I don't know how you pronounce it, but I pronounce it usually the Sanhedrin uh, because I'm from Oklahoma, and that's probably not right, but that's how I've always said it, so kind of seems weird to say it more correctly. Sorry, that's just you know how it is. The Sanhedrin was 71 judges. It's like the federal court system. You know, different judges at different levels coming all the way up to the high priest. And Caiaphas was that high priest. And by the way, most high priests ruled for four years. Caiaphas was so politically savvy and so powerful and so in with the Roman government that he ruled for 19 years, including all the way up to about 37 A.D. It's getting pretty It's getting pretty grimy in here. Can you feel it already? I mean, 71 people have all signed off on the death of a man and just subverted the law in every single way. And then there's Annas, the father-in-law to Caiaphas. This guy was a power broker. He was no longer the official high priest, but he was just as involved as he had been when he was actually the high priest. And then Herod Antipas. This is so powerful. You guys catch this. Check this out. Sometimes there are things that happen in the Bible that you don't see unless you go a little deeper and dig a little deeper and kind of put two and two together. The Bible tells us that they divided up Jerusalem into four different sections after the death of Herod the Great. And they gave one of the different sections to Herod's different descendants. One of them named Herod Antipas. And they gave Herod Antipas the area and rule in Jerusalem. That's why they call him a tetrarch. So you can say tetrarch is four different sections or quadrants. And so Herod Antipas, the tetrarch, was the son of the person who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. That's pretty deep, right? That's pretty crazy. He's standing there eye to eye, face to face, with the son of the man who tried to kill him when he was a defenseless child, age three or younger. And then what's even more interesting is Herod Antipas is still the same guy who killed John the Baptist simply because 
he, he went too far and overreached. And all his guests, he was bragging. He's like, girl, you've impressed me so much. This is the daughter, that uh, Herodias' daughter. He was so impressed and said, girl, you've impressed me so much. Just ask for whatever you want from me and I'll give it to you. He's just trying to act like he's really something powerful and someone special. He's trying to show off and be boastful and bragging. And then uh, this young girl goes and asks her mother, what should I ask for? She says, you should ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And basically, that's exactly what happens. If you've heard that old term, somebody's head on a platter, that's from John the Baptist. It's Herod Antipas who's standing there eye to eye, face to face with Jesus, the man who is following in the footsteps of John the Baptist, cousin and close friend of John the Baptist. There's a lot of drama right there just moments before Jesus is put on a cross to be crucified. And then you've got Pilate, who Eric spoke about in that very first week as we began. He talked about how he was a man from Rome. He was Rome's puppet governor. He was not a Jew, but he was carrying out the wishes of the Jews. And he was the in-between the middleman between the Jews and the Romans and trying to make sure that there was as much peace as possible. Here's what's going on. These are the players in the drama, and here's how their roles play out. Very quickly, the Sanhedrin or Sanhedrin sent the soldiers to arrest Jesus. And then if you go on, you see that Annas was involved in the first trial, Caiaphas II. Pilate examines him, finds out <laughs> that Herod Antipas happens to be there in Jerusalem because of the Passover. And so he sends him there. It's like every other politician you've ever met in your life. He wants to pass the buck. He wants the guy to die. And he knows that's important but he'd rather somebody else do it and he can keep his hands clean. You guys remember at the end of it all, what does he do? I wash my hands of the whole thing. He sends him to Herod. Herod has him examined, beaten, puts a purple robe on him and sends him back. They have a private joke. They've hated each other up to this point, but now they're buddies because Jesus is their common enemy and they make fun of Jesus, this yokel from Galilee who they're going to kill just because that's the politically expedient thing to do. It's getting really grimy, isn't it? I mean, it is a rough business. And can I just hit pause one more moment? All of this is happening to a man who never committed a single sin in his life. Not one. It is powerful to remember that when you're out there trying to please everybody, just know that Jesus couldn't get it done and he was perfect. The truth of the matter is, is that there are people in this world who will never be satisfied with anything other than their own way. And anyone who gets in the way gets shoved aside or worse. Jesus, unfortunately, falls in the second category. It's the or worse for him. Now we go to this second something to learn that I want to share with you. And this is something else to learn. The trial of Jesus happened at the time of Passover. If you remember, the lamb was the symbol of Passover. And this is also a time where just people just flood into the city of Jerusalem, maybe swelling the population two to three full times. That means the difference between being a place here in Houston that's already pretty crowded and difficult to get around in. 7.7 million people going to about 15 or 16 million people. It is an incredible thing to think about something swelling to two or even three times its size. It's an incredibly busy time and it's the highest holiday 
holiday by far. It's like wrapping our 4th of July with Easter and with Thanksgiving and pushing them all into one single holiday. Here's what I mean. They became of nation as God brought them out of Egypt. That's when the Passover happened for the very first time. And so they have this time of Thanksgiving because there's all kinds of friends and family that get together. It's this incredibly important family time like our Thanksgiving. And it is also the highest spiritual holiday. It's like our Easter, our July 4th, and our Thanksgiving all pressed into one. And at this moment when more eyeballs are on Jesus than ever before, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, steps to the front and says, I will be crucified and I will literally become the lamb during this, my final Passover. It's an incredible thing to see. This is what's going on in the trial and what's happening with Jesus. But there are important things going on for individuals as well. And I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss this thing that could be missed. Jesus is seen as beneath the powers and the intellectuals. In other words, if you remember when they saw Peter and they heard him speak, they said, surely you are one of them because your speech gives you away. In other words, he spoke in a way that told everybody that he was from Galilee. Now, I can only say this because I was a person who grew up there. Have any of y'all ever met anybody from Georgia? I lived in Georgia, and it was the funniest thing in the world because I was about four years old when I moved to Georgia. From the place that I was born, I was born in Miami. Some of you guys don't know that. I was born in the Miami area in a little town called Deerfield Beach. I went from Deerfield Beach to South Georgia. Now, my parents tell me that I was incredible at mimicking or mocking people, and sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. It can help you to learn like foreign languages and things like that, which I'm trying still to learn Spanish, but it also can be something that is like a curse because my parents said I was about two months in in my life in South Georgia, and I sounded like I had always lived in South Georgia. I was four years old and everybody thought I was a hillbilly like you'd never seen in your whole entire life. Now, that's a true story. You can ask my mom because I know half of y'all are friends of my mom on Facebook. All right, here's the deal. Here's the truth. When they heard Peter speak and they said, surely you're a Galilean too because your voice, your speech gives you away. I mean, this is what they were saying. You sound like a backward guy from the town of Galilee. In other words, whenever they spoke about him and Nathaniel was asked about him in John chapter 1, he says, Galilee, can anything good come from Galilee or Nazareth? Are you serious? How is the Messiah going to come from a backwards place like that? So they thought Jesus was beneath them. They were the intellectuals and he was just some yokel from the backwater towns. And yet... They're so important in his dignity, in his silent submission to the plan of God. Jesus prevents other people from dragging him down to their level. And he claims who he is. He claims his crown. Now, can I just say something to you and to me? If we would realize who we are, no matter where we are from, if we would start carrying ourselves with the dignity that there are things that this world offers us 
that are beneath us. That we are better than. I think our world would be far more impacted with the lives of Christians than it is. Because most of us as Christians, we want to claim that name, but we don't want to live up to it. With Jesus, he carried himself with such dignity. When he spoke to the man who was from Rome, Pilate said, really, you are a king? And he believed him. This backwater, backwoods kind of guy stood before him with such dignity and grace and power that it could not even be denied from a man from the most educated part of the world. He said, really, it's true? You are a king? You are a king then. Powerful. A lot of stuff going on for a lot of individuals in this story. The trial of Jesus revealed a lot of things to a lot of people. And if you heard it and listened close, you know that one of the most famous ones is the fact that Peter, in the trial, he's outside of the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, waiting. And you already know what happens. Peter denies even knowing the Lord. As we spoke about last week, we said, you know, he's the one who said, I'd never leave you. Check this video out. They say a rooster crowing is God's wake-up call. Yeah, that's, uh, at least that's the way it was for me. Everything, that, that whole night was a blur, all right? Um, I didn't comprehend... None of us could comprehend everything that was going on, all right? We were all in the upper room. Jesus was washing our feet. Um, then we were in the garden. Jesus goes off to pray by himself. I fell asleep. I'm not proud of it. I had a big meal. Bread makes me sleepy. Next thing we know, me, James, and John, Jesus is in our face, and he's trying to wake us up. And uh, he said, um, what is he said, uh, the, the, uh, the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing. And, and then before we know it, Judas is kissing Jesus on the cheek. I try to go help him. I cut off this guard's ear. For the record, I wasn't aiming for his ear. I'm a fisherman, not a swordsman. And then they, uh, they arrest Jesus and they take him off. And we, we ran. And it wasn't but two hours earlier that we were in the upper room. I was looking at him. I was looking him right in the eye saying, if everyone disowns you, Jesus, I won't. I'm with you. I love you. And I think that's what made me stop, turn around, go back. And uh, I caught a glimpse of Jesus as they were taking him to the high priest's house. Stood at the gate, and some girl comes up to me, starts pointing at me, starts going, you, you're with him. You're with this man that claims to be the son of God. You're one of his disciples. I felt like every eye was on me. So I just brushed her off. I said, you don't know what you're talking about. You got the wrong guy. I get my way into the courtyard, and uh, it's cold. I, I try to warm up by the fire. And then there's this guy that recognizes me, and he is uh, from the ear incident, you know, and starts going, get him, get him, he's with him. Just arrest him, get him. And I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about, all right? I wasn't with him. 
It was easier the second time to deny him. It was sometime right before morning, and um, this wise guy, he comes up to me and goes, who are you kidding, all right? Who are you fooling? You're with him. I can tell by your accent. I'm like, this is just the way I talk, all right? And, and the whole night, they kept pushing him around. They kept beating him. They kept spitting on him, throwing insults at him, and I couldn't take it anymore. I had enough. I was tired of people accusing me, looking at me, and I, and I just I said a few things that I'm not proud of, but I was like, leave him alone. You don't know what you're doing, all right? Just leave him alone. I wasn't with him. And that's when I heard the most blood-curdling sound I ever heard in my whole life. I heard that rooster crow. And at that moment, Jesus, he turns around and he looks at me. He looks at me. And his gaze, you can't escape his gaze. I mean, when his eyes are on you, you cannot escape it. And they arrested him and they took him off. I will die with you, Jesus. As everyone, if everybody disowns you, I will die with you. What a, what a joke. I mean, what would you do? At that moment, at that time, I ran. I ran so fast, I ran so long. And you know what they did? They killed him. He's dead. <clears throat> so, as we see the things that are going on for the different members and parts of the story of the trials of Jesus, we see still yet the will of the king coming through. And this is what I mean. I spoke to you guys last week about the will of Christ when he says to the Father, not my will but yours be done, and then and there he claims his crown. I believe that in the Garden of Gethsemane was the actual crucifixion, the crucifixion of the will. I believe that still but here is what I want to share with you today. The big idea for today is just simply this. The strength and peace of Christ still overcomes your difficult and unjust circumstances. Now, we as Americans, we, we have this vaulted idea of the legal system and justice and we'll stand for justice and we'll make sure that nobody ever dies without it being something that should have happened and we're going to do so in a dispassionate way we're not going to be caught up by the passion or the rolling of a crowd and this is something that we hate and we despise here in this country when we do things purely out of emotion but here is what is incredible and beautiful the strength and peace that Jesus shows is aware, making us aware of the fact that even when things were unjust and wrong and seven different reasons that he should have been able to say, enough, this is enough, you can't do this to me because you're doing things that are not supposed to be done according to your very own words. 
Even when Jesus finds himself in the midst of an incredibly unjust and an incredibly difficult situation, he stands there with dignity and grace that cannot be denied even by his most vocal and most vehement critics. Now, here's what I say to you. That kind of peace, that kind of dignity, that kind of strength of character is still available to us because I don't know about you, but all of us at one point or another, I believe, go through some very unjust things, some things that shouldn't happen to us that do anyway, some things that are difficult for us to understand, but also to bear up under. And the truth of the matter is, is that in the midst of difficult and unjust circumstances, we can usually respond in a few different ways. My personal favorite is, that's not right. And I act like a child who didn't get his way. I stamp my feet and I kind of pout out my lip. I'm like, this isn't even fair. And Jesus, on the absolute opposite end of the spectrum, knows that everything that's going on and swirling around him, he has absolutely zero to do with. Because as I said, he is the sinless and perfect son of God. And yet by submitting to the will of God, he has put himself in those crosshairs. He's about to suffer the indignities, the injustice, and the horror of the cross. And he stands there and bears all of its weight on his shoulders. And he does so with dignity that cannot be denied. He deals with it with peace. And even when he has the opportunity, when Pilate gives him the chance to just speak a word and it's over, he keeps his mouth shut, just like it was predicted of him in Isaiah. It's so important and so powerful. And let's just say this big idea together real quickly and we'll keep moving. Would you guys say with me? The strength and peace of Christ still overcomes your difficult and unjust circumstances. Can I just say this real quickly? You may be saying, Randy, I'm going through these things and it's not right. I'm going through these things and it's not fair. I'm going through these things and it's pressed me to my absolute limit. Here's what I have good news about. I don't have the news that I could say, I've figured it out. I've got all the answers. <laughs> I haven't said to the you, I can wave a magic wand and make it all go away. And even the power of prayer does not always make every single difficult or unjust thing in your life or my life go away. Amen. I mean, this is true. We still have to go through some dark days that we didn't earn. But the way that we go through it is really up to us. And as Jesus rises in Gethsemane and says, it's the will of the Father that's going to be done. He goes forward and he deals with this in dignity and strength that to be very frank, most of us just simply don't even come close to exhibiting. In the midst of it all, Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Don't tell people that I've given you a miracle, a, a healing anyway. But finally... As he stands up from Gethsemane's rock, he says, you know what? My hour is here. My hour is now. He realizes that he is walking the footsteps that he did not design as a human, but as God, he prescribed, prophesied, and predicted. He walks every single one and every single beat, beat, 
beat, he hits every single mark, and it's all happening just as God said that it would. He says, the hour has come. The Son of Man is now delivered into the hands of sinners. And these are just a few of the scriptures that Jesus said, it's not yet time, it's not yet time. Even all the way back to his very first miracle in John chapter 2, when he looked at his mom, he said, why are you involving me? (laughs) My hour has not yet come. Now, he says, my hour has come. And the pressures that he faced, we talked about this last week. They're physical, relational, spiritual, all of these things and more. If you didn't hear that last week, go back and listen to it. There's some things there about Jesus and what he endured for you and for me that are really true. But don't miss this other thing that I want to share with you. Don't miss this second thing. Pilate says to Jesus, don't you know that I have the power to set you free? How many of you know that that's true? He could have. He could have. He was the real power. We're going to go on in a little further and see. But in that moment, he was speaking the truth. But by being silent, as he is falsely accused, Jesus is sentenced to death by people like us so he can save people like us. He chooses it all. And one word, one sentence One moment of weakness given into would have undone it all, but he did not. He kept on that very path. The will of the Father was there. And this is the other part and the important part of the will. And we go on here. Jesus submits to God's plan over his own preference. (laughs) Wow, a lot right there. God's plan over my preference. Most of us don't do that, but this is true. He shows submission by choosing silence in an unjust, unfair situation as the king claims his crown. This is Jesus doing what he said he would do. And very quickly, you see that Jesus prescribed how to die. He did it. You go to this next slide and you see here. So Pilate came out to them and said, what charges are you bringing against this man? He's asking for charges. What do they say? Well, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have even handed him over to you. In other words, let's just skip over what your question is asking. And let's just tell you, trust us, he's a bad guy. Pilate says, well, you take him and judge him by your own law. If he's such a bad guy, you can't even give me a charge. You take him and you crucify him. You want him dead so bad, do it yourself. That's the New Texas version. Here's what he says. (laughs) Take him. Judge him by your own law. They say, but we have no right to execute anybody. We're just the Jews in Jerusalem. You're the real power. You're the empire. You won't let us kill people. Because if you were Jewish, you died capital punishment by stoning. And it's not like Denver, y'all. It's you got stones thrown at you until you died. It was a brutal and horrible way to die but nothing compared to a cross. And then it goes on and it says, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death that he was going to die. It was also written in Psalms where he said, they've pierced my hands and my feet. Even before crucifixion was a thing, Jesus was predicted to have died by piercing of his hands and piercing of his feet. You explain that if God's not real. Just one little fact. And Pilate interacts there in that way. 
and some powerful things are being revealed about human nature and the grace of God. When Pilate is sitting on the judge's seat, according to Matthew chapter 27, 19, his wife sends him a message. And man, how many of you know you better be paying attention if the wife sends the message, right? You better get that text. You better answer that one. The wife sends him a text. Okay, not a text, but she sends a messenger. And here is exactly what she says. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. I've been suffering a great deal today in a dream because of him. (laughs) I'm here to tell you that the voice of God in my life sounds an awful lot like my wife. And I'm not saying that in a funny way. She is my balance and she is person that speaks truth when other people wouldn't the truth of the matter is is his wife is trying to pull him back from something that he will be infamous for from this day forward for the rest of his life and all throughout eternity the man who washed his hands of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ his wife says don't do it I've been dreaming all night of this man and he is innocent what you're about to do don't and then They shout to Pilate. He's interacting with the crowd. They shout, take him away, take him away and crucify him. And Pilate said, am I going to crucify a man who is your king? And then the chief priests, the men who literally hate Rome above all things, say something that if you would have asked them, they would have said, I will never say these words in my life. My mouth will never form the words, we have no king but Caesar. And yet in that moment, they hate Christ so intensely. They shout to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. (laughs) And then they even, as spoken of in the other passages of Scripture, they say, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. In other words, you're going to let a guy who claims to be a king loose in a kingdom run by Caesar? Hmm. How's that going to work out for you, Pilate? It's a lot of stuff going on. It's pretty grimy, isn't it? It's pretty dirty. It's dirty business, and it's man's humanity at its worst hour and God's divinity at its best. <laughs> Have you all ever had that experience that's summed up like a mug? Like a mug. Did I just say that out loud? I mean, have y'all ever had that experience where you look around and go, did I just say that out loud? Did my words just come out of my mouth? This is that moment for the chief priests. We have no king but Caesar. It's the equivalent of a driving experience where you just crash through all the barriers and you run into incredible danger. It's like this, the road signs that say that it's closed. You're entering a danger zone and you just keep going and crashing through. At that moment, here's something that you can take away. And I want you to hear this and understand this. This is so important. It's a big question for you. Big question for me. Have you ever experienced that moment in your life where you said, I can't believe I just said that? Have you ever had that experience where you said to yourself, I can't believe I just did that? If you ever find yourself in a moment, in that moment, can you remember this? When you crash through those barriers and guardrails, when something comes out of your mouth that you can't believe you just said, I'm going to encourage you, when you would have never believed you could be capable of saying those things, usually those are the moments that we regret the very most. Confess and fix it ASAP. You're in dangerous territory. 
<laughs> I'm going to jump down very quickly to the slide where Jesus looks at Peter. This is Peter's moment. It's, this is this kind of moment for Peter. It's slide uh, number 29 right there, Brendan, if you don't mind. And the Lord turns and looks straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the words that the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You're going to disown me three times. It's Peter saying in that moment, I don't even know who you're talking about. Something he had said and sworn just a few hours earlier. Lord, if everyone turns their back, I can promise you, you'll never stand alone because I will never turn my back on you. And a few hours later, he's saying, I don't even know the man you're calling Jesus. What a difference between Jesus and Peter in this moment. Jesus with quiet confidence. Peter with desperate self-defense. Jesus with the long-term pride. Peter seeking desperately for short-term satisfaction. Jesus standing there in the most difficult moments of his life with a purposeful stride and a purposeful gaze and a purposeful bearing. And then Peter shrinking away from a servant girl at a fire just so he can get away. It's God's master plan happening versus our own tiny plan for us that involves just us. The dramatic difference is put on full display. And here is what I would say to you and what I would say to me. This is the takeaway that we can have from this message right here. Your proximity to Christ is the determining factor in how you will go through the experiences of your life. Now, I want to be very clear about something. Listen closely to what I've said and just leave that up on the screen for just a moment. I didn't say that if you're close to Christ, you're never going to have a difficult thing. You're never going to have something unjust. That's not what I said. That's not what I believe. But you will experience it differently. As Jesus goes through all of these incredibly unjust and unfair things, this trial that is a joke of a trial where he's taken to the Sanhedrin and taken to Annas and then to Caiaphas and then to Pilate who sends him to Herod Antipas who sends him back to Pilate who finally goes before the crowd and says, I could release Barabbas instead. And they say, no, crucify him. The trial that is not even close to a trial, it's a joke. It is all happening, and Jesus stands there, looks people in the eye, and says, You'd have no power over me except for that which is given to you from heaven above. And I'm good with that power from heaven above. So whatever you do, do what you're going to do. That, that's the paraphrase, but that's what's going on. And Jesus silently bears up against it and says, I can deal with it. <laughs> but here is the problem. Peter whose world is being shattered, and all of the disciples who are being scattered. It's all happening according to God's plan. But part of the problem is, is that moments before he is you know, caught and captured, they've been arguing about who's the greatest among them. And Peter, even though he didn't run away, he ran to the courtyard, but he followed Jesus at a distance. He's not close to the Lord the way that he's supposed to be. Now here's what I'm going to get real personal and real pointed with you and with me. I've got just a moment. Hang with me. Here's the truth. For many of us, we can let things drift in a new way that we've never let it drift before because of our life. 
because of 2020, because of COVID, because of everything that's been going on and changing. And we found reasons to label and blame the things that we know are happening in our life. We've found reasons that it's happening and reasons to excuse. But the truth of the matter is, is that for many of us, God is further away from us than he's been in a long time. Maybe for some of us that he's ever been. And it is time for us to recommit ourselves. And here's what I would say to you. For many of us and for many of us as Christians all throughout all of the centuries, we find the season of Easter to be a time to be called back to those things that are most important. To be called back to the basics of following Christ with our whole heart and not following him at a distance. And I'm here to tell you that some of you are following Christ at a distance. And because of that, there's some things that you don't even know have loose wheels. And the wheels are about to come off in your life. And you're this close to disaster, but you don't even know it because you're following Christ at a distance. It is time for us to recommit ourselves and say, I've let some things happen in my life. I've let some things slip in my life. I've heard things come out of my mouth that I never thought would come out. I've done things that I swore that I would never do or at least never do again. And yet somehow in the midst of all of this, I found a way to excuse myself and make myself feel comfortable with a place that I never should have gone in the first place. Stop. Come back. The Bible says that a word to the wise is sufficient. In the way that people make decisions and choices that haunt them for the rest of their lives and taint their legacy throughout centuries. For some of us, we're at a verge of doing something that we need not ever do. But we have to realize the experience of life is so much different when it's so much different when God is at a distance versus when we are in close. We have power, we have peace, we have strength, we have dignity. We realize there are things that are just beneath us and that we don't want to get involved in, not because they're not available or accessible, but because that's just not good enough for a child of God. Can I get an amen in the house? I mean, there are things that we just shouldn't mess with, and we, we have them accessible at our very fingertips. It's a, as close as a laptop, as close as a cell phone, but it's just not worth it because you're better than that. Man, realize you're better than that, and the Spirit of God revealed to you in this moment, don't go down that road. You'll regret it for the rest of your life. People that you love like never before might get hurt like never before. Be careful. Come back. How do you apply this message? Very quickly, submit your will and take actions that keep you close to God as he directs the course of your life. This is how you apply this message. You cease to be the person who's in control of your life and you give it over to Christ. <laughs> trials. Wow. <laughs> Criminal convicts and trials. It's always captured our attention. Just do a quick little mental exercise with you guys. Let's go to this next slide. Put some of you remembering your age. This is 1994. We are almost 30 years from 1994. Some of you in here have no idea who this dude is. Some of you know exactly who he is. If you know exactly who this guy is, can I see your hand? 
Congratulations, you're old. I'm sorry. I don't want to be the one to tell you, but congratulations, you're old. I got my hand raised. I'm old. I know exactly who this guy is. Now, if you don't, I'm going to get it even more personal, a little closer, a little closer, a little closer. Check this one out. Any of you all know who these people are? How many of you all know all three of their names? You're old. You're very, very old. But at least you're connected to the things that are going on and were important in 1994. Okay, back it up. That's Judge Lance Ito. This over on the far left is Marsha Clark. On the left, Christopher Darden and Johnny Cochran, who you never knew until he did a trial for a certain guy. Let's go to this next slide. How many of you remember where you were? You were probably watching the Houston Rockets versus the New York Knicks on TV in the finals, and this came up, and they stopped the basketball game to watch a low-speed chase. Who knew that that was a thing from a guy in a white Bronco? How many of you know who the guy in the white Bronco is? We all know him. It is O.J. Simpson. And did you guys know who the guy in the middle is? A dude by the name of Robert Kardashian. Yes, that Kardashian, not Robert Jr., but the original Robert Kardashian, who had a little girl named Kim a little later. Kim Kardashian's daddy came on the scene as a lawyer for OJ. It still captures our attention. These trials, they're amazing. They're, they're drama. They're incredible. As a matter of fact, in 2016, The People vs. O.J. Simpson became a Netflix series and, and an FX series. I'm not recommending it per se. I'm just saying that even in 2016, you know, we're still concerned about it 20 plus years later. It's an interesting thing. Here's the truth. We don't know about the trial of O.J. Simpson, whether it was right or wrong, just or unjust. I think we all have our opinions, but here's what we do know. Jesus before Caiaphas, Jesus before Annas, Jesus before the Sanhedrin, Jesus before Pilate, Jesus before Herod Antipas, and then Jesus before Pilate again, where the crowd wins, not justice, but the crowd. It's all happening, not because Jesus wasn't in control, but because he was. He was carrying himself with dignity, peace, and strength that we don't even grasp facing down the most difficult days a man could face and doing it all so that people like that crowd that were screaming for his blood could one day be forgiven of their sins because of his blood. This is why Jesus is different than us and why we as humanity need a savior so desperately. Dear God, may you always be our king, the king that claims the crown, but also the king that claims first place in our hearts. May we live in a way that brings glory and honor to you, and may we always be moved and knowing that you came to seek and to save those 